Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4, verse 15, please. We're going to talk this morning about the right way to worship. I don't suppose anything has been a greater subject of debate in the church over the last 30 years than the subject of worship. Traditional or contemporary, formal or informal, planned or spontaneous, with hymns or choruses. One of my late uncles referred to them as 7 Eleven songs. Seven words, you sing them 11 times. He did not have a positive opinion of them. He was an idiot sometimes, too. I'd just throw that in there. I say that with all due respect. I loved him. I'm an idiot sometimes, too. Organ or guitars. Sunday morning or Friday night. Loud or quiet. Books or screens. On and on and on and on. I could go and on and on and on. Many of us have gone. Is there a right way to worship? The answer is yes. So what is the right way to worship? Well, this passage going is going to provide... An answer for us once and for all. Worship is a word that's used 13 times in the Gospel of John. Ten of those 13 times are in this passage. So it's a subject about, or a passage about worship. Our word worship is taken from an older English word, worth Ship. It's just been shortened to worship in our day. Worship was a word that meant to recognize or acknowledge the worth of God in, in this case. To praise and honor God because he is worthy or worth our doing this. To give him what he is worth. Our text shows us how to do this. The right way to worship. Follow along with me as I begin to read. Beginning in verse 15 of John chapter 4. And before we immediately begin that. You can keep your heads bowed and looking if you want to. I don't want to make you work too much this morning and raise up and down. Do remember the context. Jesus is in this encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. 
conversation about regular water turns into a conversation about spiritual water, living water, the salvation that Jesus offers. In verse 15, she said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. She hears about this water that Jesus is offering that's better than the water that she's been drinking, even better than the water that he's asked her for, better than the water that's coming out of her forefather Jacob's well. And she says, I want some of that water, primarily because Jesus had just told her, hey, if you keep drinking this water from this well, you'll get thirsty again. You'll have to come back day after day, day after day. But if you drink this water that I'm offering... It will satisfy your thirst forever. So she says, I want some of that water. She must have been thinking about other ways that she could use her time than drinking water or drinking something else. In her mind, it must have been great to think about the notion of never getting thirsty again A particular appeal to her about the water that Jesus offered was that she wouldn't have to make her way a half mile or so every day to this well in the heat of the day to draw it up. And remember when she was doing so, she wasn't just drawing up enough for herself to get a drink at that moment, but she was doing so to meet the needs, the water needs of her family for an entire 24-hour period. Maybe she was even thinking about, I don't want to have to come to this place and do it anymore. Last week we talked about how she's doing it in the middle of the day, which wasn't the time that other women did it. They did it early in the morning, late in the afternoon when it was cool. The only explanation for doing it in the middle of the day is that she didn't want to be around the other women. because of her lifestyle, because of her shame, because of her guilt, because of their ridicule, comments, looks, remarks. So she says to Jesus, I'm thirsty. I want some of this water you're offering. I don't want to get thirsty again. I don't want to have to come and draw water again. But like Nicodemus, She doesn't yet understand exactly what Jesus is talking about, does she? She's still on an earthly plane only. Still dealing in physical reality only. Nicodemus was caught up on physical birth, not the birth from above that Jesus was talking about. Nicodemus could only see in terms of the physical wind, not the wind of the Spirit of God. The woman here, in spite of what Jesus has said which appears very clear to us, is still thinking about physical water, just a better version of the water that she had been drinking. Verse 16 says, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband. And come back here. She answered, I don't have a husband. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five 
husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I am He. The one speaking to you. From our passage, we find that the right way to worship includes three aspects. Three aspects to the right way to worship. First, the right way to worship is in honesty. The right way to worship is in Honesty. Before this Samaritan woman could receive the living water of salvation that Jesus offered her, before she could worship, she had to acknowledge and deal with the sin in her own life. So Jesus confronted her with it, didn't he? He said to her in verse 16, Go call your husband. And she said, You know what? I don't have one. Which was true. But it wasn't entirely true, wasn't it? Are any of you experts at taking a alternate route around a conversation when it gets headed down the wrong path? It's ironic that we're recognizing our graduating seniors today because in my experience, the best people in the world at doing this are teenagers. And I'm not picking at you teenagers because all of us old folks, even the oldest of us, we was teenagers once too. That's probably where you learned it from, from being around us. Jesus says, go get your husband. She says, I don't have one. Jesus is not satisfied with that answer, although it was true, and he confronts her with the depths of her sin even more, and he says, you know what? You're, you're being honest when you say that you don't have a husband. The truth is that you've had five husbands. I mean, you'd think that if you'd had that many, you'd figure out this thing's probably not going to work. Oh, for five, 
That won't keep you in the major leagues for very long, will it? So maybe she had figured that out and Jesus exposes more of her sin and he says, you know what, in the guy that you with now, he's not even your husband. So he confronts her with her sin. And he can do so because he knew about it, didn't he? He knew. She didn't have to tell him. It wasn't like she had something on outwardly that would have given him this information. He had not Googled her before they had this encounter. Wasn't friends with her on Facebook. Somebody hadn't texted him on his cell phone and said, you're about to encounter this woman. Look out for her. Five husbands living with a guy now. Jesus knew her heart because he was Jesus. Just like he knew the heart of Nathaniel in chapter 1. When he told him, here's a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Nathaniel said, you are something special. He said, you've seen nothing yet. Just like he knew the heart of Nicodemus when Nicodemus came to him at night in John chapter 3. Nicodemus starts out by saying, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God because of the miracles you do. And Jesus cuts right to the chase, right to his heart. And he says, unless you're born again, you can't be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Just like he knows about us. You hear me this morning? There's not one thing about you that Jesus doesn't know. Your deepest, darkest secrets, Jesus knows every one of them. Every one. You don't have to tell him. Somebody that's mad at you and tattletaling on you doesn't have to tell him. He already knows. He sees you in an even greater way than you see yourself. Hebrews 4.13 is a truthful yet terrifying verse in the Bible. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All things are naked and exposed to the eyes of the one that we will ultimately answer to. Going all the way back to the first sin, at least the first sin of humans, once it was committed, the very first thing they felt was exposed and naked. And they did their very best to cover it up. And ever since then, as their descendants, we've all been practicing the art of covering up our sin so that other people can't see our nakedness. But there ain't no fig leaf going to keep God from seeing you for who you really are. Revelation chapter 1 verse 14 says about the eyes of Christ that his eyes are like a fiery flame. burns right through us to the center of our minds, the center of our heart, the center of our very souls or spirits. Jesus knew of the sin in this woman's life, but even more importantly in this context, 
He wanted her to know about the sin in her life. The real issue for us personally isn't simply that God knows about our sins, but He wants us to know that He knows so that we will know about our sins. He wants us to see ourselves for the sinners that we are. He wants us to see ourselves in all of our spiritual nakedness, fully exposed. He wants us to confront that and to deal with that. Salvation demands honesty. Salvation will never take place in one soul's life apart from that person being honest with themselves about themselves. And worship requires salvation. So we could say that worship demands and requires honesty. Does that make sense? If we are going to connect to God and give to Him the praise and the glory that He deserves and acknowledge in a way that He accepts our worship of Him, we must be honest with ourselves because it's this honesty that's acknowledging and dealing with our sin that leads to repentance which is a condition for salvation. What does the world tell us to do when we're confronted with our own sin? Deny, deny, deny. But no denial allowed here. Ignoring it won't work and it will not make it go away. You can sweep your sin under the proverbial rug till kingdom come, but it ends up coming out the other side of the rug. Ignorance is not bliss when it comes to our own sin. Self-deception and self-righteousness will always keep you from Jesus And as long as you're in that self-denial, and as long as we're puffed up in our self-righteousness, we'll never get to Jesus. So what sin, or what sins, do Jesus want you to see and acknowledge this morning? Really personal here for every one of us. He wanted her to see specific sin in her life. This wasn't all the sin in her life, but it was the one that she could most easily see. What sin is it in your life that God wants you to see this morning? To acknowledge this morning. To deal with today. Not tomorrow, because tomorrow never comes. What sin does God want you to see right now and do something with right now? Is it sexual sin like the sin of this woman? Is it idolatry of some form where you're worshiping or giving all of your passion to something else instead of God? Is it sin in the area of your speech? In what you say? In words that you use? In what you don't say? In how you say the things that you say. Are you a liar? 
Is that the sin that God wants you to deal with? Is it greed? Greed that keeps you chasing after something or some things that will never satisfy you. Greed that keeps you from giving in the way that God has commanded you and us to give. Is the sin that God wants you to deal with this morning pride in your life? Spiritual or any form of haughtiness? What about worry? Fear? Doubting God? Is that the sin that Jesus wants to bring up before us so you can deal with this morning? Maybe it's drunkenness or drugs. Is laziness the sin that God wants you to deal with? Or anger, uncontrolled, hatred, maybe unfaithfulness to God Himself or to the church or to your family or to your employer is the sin that God wants you to deal with. Maybe it's a sin not that you commit, but a sin by which you omit something. Maybe it's you don't study the Word of God like you should. You don't pray like you should. You don't have faith like you should. You don't witness like you should. You don't serve like God wants you to serve. You don't attend church like God wants you to attend church. Maybe your sin is the sin of unbelief, the worst of all sins. Maybe that's the sin that God's bringing to your attention this morning and forcing you to see and wants you to deal with it and acknowledge it. I ask you, friend, and I mean that, friend, I ask you, what sin keeps you from salvation this morning? At this point in the story, it was the only thing that stood between this woman and salvation was dealing with her sin. And I don't mean fixing it all, but I mean acknowledging it all and hating it all and turning from it all. What sin keeps you from salvation this morning? Young person, is there a sin that's keeping you from Jesus this morning? Old person, is there a sin that's keeping you from Jesus this morning? Anybody in between, a sin that keeps you from the salvation of living water that Jesus offers this morning? Wouldn't you have to agree with me? It'd have to be a pretty special sin to keep you from salvation. And there is no sin that, that, that is that special. What sin keeps you from worshiping this morning, believer? What sin right now is we're in what's called a worship service. What sin is it right now that keeps you from really worshiping God? Maybe it's the sin of worrying about what we're going to eat for lunch. Worrying that with a long-winded preacher such as the one that stands before you today, whether lunch will still be warm when we get there. What sin, believer, keeps you from worshiping this morning? No sins that sweet. This is what I mean when I say that the right way to worship is in honesty. Honesty about ourselves. Honesty with ourselves. The second aspect 
of the right way to worship that we find in this passage is that we are to worship in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. Look at verse 19. The woman replies back to Jesus after he's confronted her with her sin. Some see this as another diversionary tactic. Because she doesn't have too much more to say about that. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. What would it be like if somebody came up to you today and they said, Hey, I, I can see that this is going on in your life. And I'm not talking about that psychic babble where they speak in generalities that only fools would believe. You, you know what I'm talking about. Like, even some purported Christians do it. And so, oh, I can see that you're struggling. <laughs> Jason was telling me about a guy he met who had the gift of prophecy and working with youth. And he said to the group of young boys he was speaking to, I can sense from my spirit of prophecy that some of you are struggling with the sin of lust. Well, duh. Well, you really have to have a connection to God to know that teenage boys struggle with lust. You may as well say, I can see that you're struggling with being human. He says, I can see that you're a prophet because he legitimately looked into her soul and saw things in her and in her life that he had no way of knowing. But she diverts and she starts to argue a debate. Look, if somebody points out sin in one area of our life, let's quickly point out some area where we've got the upper hand on them so we even out the feelings of guilt. I hear this from my kids often. I made a better grade than you. Oh, yeah, well, I can sing better than you. Well, oh, well, you're ugly and you've got a big nose and a fat head. Sort of the same thing here. I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers, remember, she's a Samaritan, worshipped on this mountain, and the mountain that was very near was Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans, I, I went into their history last week, so I won't do it again. But for now, I want you to understand that the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. They didn't accept the rest of the Old Testament like the Jews did. And they were wrong in doing so. Because of that, they worshipped at Mount Gerizim. They even built a temple there because it was the first place where Abraham had built an altar to worship God. But if they had been exposed to all the Word of God, they would have seen that the right place where God had identified for His temple to be built and for His worship to take place, at least physically, was in Jerusalem. So there was this long-standing debate between the Samaritans and the Jews, and she wants to get into this debate. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. So she's wanting the prophet who's exposed all of her sin to tell her the right answer. Notice that her evidence for her and her people being right is our fathers worshipped on this mountain. 
And we can be very guilty of doing this, doing things simply because that's the way it's always been done. And that's all we've ever heard. And I think that many of us feel that the only way that we can honor our fathers and mothers and grandparents and ancestors is to build them up to be superhumans who had no sin and weren't even capable of sinning. But the very best ones of them are all sinners just like we are and they are nowhere near infallible. There is no man that I admire more and there isn't a close second place to my dad. But I am doing my dad no dishonor by not taking everything to be the gospel truth just because he says so. I'm not dishonoring him. My children will not dishonor me by not simply taking something to be the truth because I've said it to be the truth. We need to honor our parents by digging into the Word of God to see what God says, not just what Mama and Daddy have to say. They're not infallible, but God is. Our fathers worshipped here, yet you say the place to worship is Jerusalem, so what's right? And Jesus, in verse 21, tells her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming. And whenever you read that phrase in the gospel, an hour is coming, it's talking about the coming of Christ. It's talking about the crucifixion of Christ. It's talking about the resurrection of Christ. An hour is coming. When you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, what Jesus is saying there is you're asking the wrong question because it's about to be a moot point entirely. He doesn't say that it didn't matter at that time. He doesn't say the Jewish way and the Samaritan way was wrong. We'll see that real clear. What he does say, though, is that's not going to matter in a little while. Listen to me, the coming of Jesus changed everything about worship. Before Christ, do you know what worship was about? At least the best the people could understand it. Doing it in the right place. Wearing the right thing while you did it. Doing the stuff prescribed for worship in the right order. Doing it on the right day using the right tools, the right instruments, going through the right people, all of that had to do with worship. But with the coming of Jesus, all of that would change and be rendered obsolete. And yet the biggest part of our worship wars listen to me folks, is over those same things that the coming of Jesus did away with completely as far as their significance goes. Verse 22, he said, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. They were agnostics and didn't know it. That's what an agnostic is. It means one who worships without knowledge. You think, well, poor Samaritans, a bunch of agnostics. Let me tell you something. 
Churches are filled across our land even this day with people who think they're worshiping and they're nothing more than agnostics because they worship a God that they don't know. They worship a God of their own creation, of their own imagination, not a God who's revealed himself definitively in the scripture. So he answers her question in a way and says, y'all aren't right. Because you worship based on what you don't know. You've rejected the word of God. You worship according to superstition. You worship according to intuition. You worship according to yourself and your whims and your fancies, your traditions. Speaking of the Jews, he says we worship what we do know. Now the Jews weren't right when it came to worship. That's going to be clear in just a moment. But when it came to doing it in the right ways, outwardly, they had it right because they based it on the Word of God. He says because salvation's from the Jews. And what that means is that all that we know of salvation has come from the Jews. He's delivered His Word to the world through them and He delivered His Messiah to the world through them. Verse 23 says, But an hour is coming, and listen to this, he takes it a step further here. An hour is coming and is now here. With the coming of Jesus, it had already changed. An hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, notice the, the adjective there, true. Not just worshipers, but true. And, and there are people that worship that aren't true, real worshipers. An hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Worship was about to change. I say change, and that may lead you to think wrongly. Worship had always been about the heart. Worship had always been about the spirit. That's why throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, God would tell Israel things like this. I'm sick of your rituals. They make me sick. They stink. But they had made it about these external things. Jesus says here in correction of that. An hour is coming and is now here when worship will not be about all these external things, but worshiping the Father will be in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. For God is spirit. That's why worship is to be in spirit and in truth, because it's what God is. He's a spirit. This is the classic definition of the nature of God. He's spirit. Now, what does that mean? It means he's not flesh and blood and bones like we are. There's something more to God than that. He's invisible and would remain so if he did not reveal himself to us. God is spirit, so he must be worshipped, he says, in spirit and in truth. Well, what does worshipping in spirit mean? Well, the spirit here isn't a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's a reference to our spirit. And the spirit refers to the immaterial part of who we are and what we are. Look, there's a material part of who we are, right? Touch yourself. That's material. You know, honk your nose or do something. This is the material thing. This thing that wears out. Look, I played my mother's 65th birthday is today. We went up and had a big family day. Our family days always involved ball in some way. We played wiffle ball for two hours yesterday. I am reminded that there is a material part of me this morning that is decaying because my knees are on fire. 
I, but there's an immaterial part of us that's the real person that we are. And it will never go away. It will never die. It's what makes us like God. It's what it means to be made, what it means to be made in His image. We are spirit, or we have a spirit as God is spirit. So when Jesus says that we must worship in spirit, he means that true and right worship is something that's internal, not external. Folks, I hope that we understand, and if we don't understand, we'll submit ourselves to the knowledge of this passage this morning and get this, that worship is not an issue of where we do it. Man, I love this sanctuary. I'm glad we're renovating it and doing what we're doing. I'm very glad about that. I know it will be beautiful. But I know that there are some who think you really can't worship if you don't do it in here. And anything that's done down there is inferior to the worship that would be done in here. Now, I acknowledge your right to feel that way. But in your right to feel that way, you are biblically wrong. Worship today has nothing to do with where we do it. It was the great mistake of the Jews. For they limited the limitless God to one place. One building on one hill in one place. And Stephen exposed them for the heretics that they were that led to his death and said, you think you can contain the God who rules over heaven and earth and the earth itself is his footstool with one building and one particular place in that building? It can't be done. This also means that worship is not an issue of what we wear. Contrary to some of our most deeply held convictions, worship is not an issue of what we wear. Y'all notice our, our young guys are wearing these short shorts now? And I've joked with them that one day they're going to look back and be really embarrassed. Hey, look, I'm, I don't have my mic on, so let me step here just to demonstrate. I'm talking about they can play Australian rules football with these shorts that they're wearing. And I goof off at Caleb about it, and I pick at these other boys, and every once in a while I see them wearing the church, and, and going through my mind is what must be in some people's mind. My gosh, what is our world coming to? Well, did you know you can even worship God in short shorts? Not too short, though. Speaking with Bo earlier, KJ, I was going to ask you, do y'all have any more of those old bike or Rydale or spot-built short? Young guys, if y'all really want to get into the short shorts, find some of these old coaches and get some of those tight things they used to wear. Worship isn't about what we wear. You can wear the finest Italian suit and be so far from worship. Worship isn't about what we do. 
It's not about rituals that we perform or don't perform. It's not about instruments that we use or things that we use in the service. It's not about what we do with our bodies. You know, there are some people who think this is worship. And there are some people who think this is worship. And never the twixt shall meet. You can do or not do both of those things and worship or not worship. It's not about external stuff. It's not about when we do it. We are not limited to worshiping during this hour. Look, I know 10 o'clock was an adjustment for a lot of people because for a lot of people, 11 o'clock on Sunday is the only time of the week to worship. It's not about a time anymore. It's an issue of how we do it. In our hearts in our minds, in our spirits, and even more so, it's an issue of whether we do it or not. Because if we aren't worshiping in our mind and in our heart and in our spirit, if internally we're not giving unto God the glory and adoration and honor and attention and focus that He deserves, it doesn't matter what we do externally. We're not worshiping. We're guilty of sacrilege. This was the great error of the Jews because Jesus said about them. They got the truth part right. At least most of it. They knew where to do it and how to do it and all of that. But they didn't worship in spirit. And there are many just like them today. They didn't die out 2,000 years ago, people who don't worship in spirit. You know what kind of worship this is? Dry. Dull. Dead. doesn't matter what you call it, it's not worship if it's not in spirit. It's not about what we do out here. It's all about what we do in here. It's all about what we do in here. 